So the reading this morning is Genesis chapter 3. It's found on page 5 of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed to the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. issue 
of uh, suffering. Uh, this Sunday morning we're looking more at why there is suffering in the world and next week more an emphasis on how to respond to suffering. So the first question might appeal to you if you happen to have life going pretty nicely for you at the moment and you can indulge in a little bit of philosophizing. The other, of course, will appeal to you if at this particular moment in time then you could deal with some guidance, some assistance, some support because you are going through some grief, either yourself or someone very close to you. So why does suffering happen? Well, there are some pretty obvious things to say and there are other things which are not so obvious. Sometimes suffering just happens for no particular reason and no one is to blame. When I broke my leg a few years ago playing football, no one else was around. Actually, I didn't connect with anybody. I was playing in goal. I had my D that they couldn't come into. There's just me. And there's the ball, which I wanted to get. And as I went to run for it, my Reebok trainers gripped rather too well to the floor. And the bulk, which is in me, basically was too much for my left leg. And it broke. It just happened. It's no one's... Something can be our fault. If I were to drink a bottle of wine and uh, crash my car into a lamppost and kill myself, there would only be me to blame. However, if before I hit the lamppost I ploughed into a mother pushing a buggy with her son in and killed them, then from their perspective the suffering will have been caused by someone else, namely me. Sometimes all those kind of variables get merged together. So in 1985, Mexico experienced a severe earthquake. Some buildings collapsed and killed the occupants, whilst buildings next to them did not, and their occupants survived. One reason was that the buildings which collapsed had not been constructed in accordance with building regulations, designed so that such buildings might stand up to the shock of a natural disaster. Some think it would seem they haven't learnt 30 years later. But why in God's world do such devastating natural disasters occur, whether it's uh, 300,000 people killed um, by a tsunami or one person who dies in a cancer ward? It is said, if God is good, he would not want evil to exist. If God is all-powerful, he would not allow evil to exist. Evil, though, does exist. Therefore, a God who is both good and all-powerful cannot exist. So the argument is put. In other words, you can have a good God, but who isn't powerful enough to eradicate evil or you can have an all-powerful God who couldn't care less about evil. Either way, you'd end up with the devil for God. But you can't have, they would say, one God who is both good and all-powerful. But that neat little argument is based on a false premise, a premise that an all-powerful and good God might not have a good reason to temporarily permit 
what he clearly does not approve of. You get it in that uh, account in Genesis 3 of how the first human beings succumbed to temptation, rebelled against God, and immediately know that they've done wrong, they feel ashamed, a barrier goes up between them and God, they hide from him because they fear punishment, they blame each other, and he expels them from the garden. But even in Genesis 3, right at the very beginning of the Bible, there is God's hint of deliverance. There is the hint of Christ's coming, when it is said that uh, the serpent who stands for Satan, he will be bruised, his head will be crushed by the woman's seed, who will be Jesus Christ. And salvation is foreshadowed. They were naked when expelled from the Garden of Eden. So God sacrificed some animals so that their skins could cover and protect those human beings. That foreshadows another sacrifice many, many years later, the sacrifice of himself, the Son of God, who gave his life so that we could be forgiven and restored and come back to him. And his sacrifice means that we can be clothed in his righteousness. Of course, if you're an atheist, you don't have a problem with suffering at all. So let's hear from Richard Dawkins. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In fact, he says, if we attempted to look at any spiritual resources to find purpose and meaning in the face of suffering, then we are, quote, infantile. So atheism, then, clearly is a philosophy of despair. But what of attempts to try and explain suffering? There have been various attempts throughout history. Let me just start with two which proved to be inadequate. Dualism, you blame it all on the devil. Good and evil are equal and opposite powers locked in a never-ending struggle. Good from God, evil from the devil. And it is a plausible explanation of why the earth is full of both. But it's not so straightforward. The Apostle Paul, for example, writes, all things are done according to God's plans and decision. Isaiah, I am the, the Lord, there is no other God. I create both light and darkness. I bring both blessing and disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. In other words, the God of the Bible is absolutely sovereign. Nothing, not even evil and suffering, are outside of his ultimate control. The devil, Satan, prince of darkness, however he's called, is merely an agent of suffering. He is a creature. He wasn't created evil. He 
rebelled against God before Adam and Eve ever did. And he operates within the sphere of divine permission. Now we may find it awkward, that truth, but it is nonetheless the truth of the Bible. Satan, you may remember, needed God's permission to test Job with undeserved suffering. And in so doing, God limited what Satan was allowed to do to him. God's total and unique sovereignty is, of course, the basis for our Christian assurance. If the devil and the Lord were equal powers in the universe, God's plans might be thwarted. The devil might win. All things might not, as the Bible claims, work together for good. So dualism, then, is no answer. Of course, it leaves the question, why doesn't God eradicate the devil if he is all-powerful? Another explanation of suffering is monism. It's all in the mind. It is an illusion. God is in some way, they would say, in everything. And there is therefore no such thing as good and evil, pain and suffering. All our distinctions we human beings make up within our minds, within a oneness of the universe. We manufacture such dichotomies as good and evil, pain and suffering, joy and sorrow. Christian science is a particular view that tries to go along that line. But most of us know from experience it doesn't have plausibility. You may have heard this. There was a faith healer of Deal who said that although pain is not real, when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. Well, I certainly... Um, when I've broken collarbones and legs and what have you. It is real to me. It is not an illusion. It's not something I'm imagining. But there is a much deeper objection to monism. It renders all values illusory. Ethical categories all lie in the mind, it would say. But the Bible doesn't endorse that. So we turn to the Bible to see why a good and almighty God might permit evil and suffering for a time. And we start with God's revelation of himself as a righteous God. That is a dominant characteristic of his. He is utterly opposed to evil. It is the character of God which underpins all value judgments and our judgment on suffering. God does not like suffering and he sees hope beyond this time of suffering, as I've mentioned, right from the very beginning. And that is why at the committal service in a funeral, whether at a graveside or whether as the curtain closes, we say he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is the basis for our assurance. Well, that brings us to the will of God and the distinction between what God approves of, what he wills, and what God merely permits or allows. This is the only way that suffering can be perceived as a real evil 
and not just a subjective value judgment in the human mind, which has no real significance outside of it. God sees suffering as a negative too, and because he hates it, we can be assured that there will be no pain in heaven. So Christianity must reject dualism to be sure that there is a heaven to inherit, and it must reject monism to be sure that heaven is worth inheriting. So we come to the big question. If God hates evil and suffering so much, why does he put up with it? It's not easy, and we don't even have a complete answer. But we believe in one almighty God who for some reason allows things to go on in his universe to which he is thoroughly opposed. So let's take a look at a Christian view of suffering, how it tries to, um, I suppose, defend God being righteous and loving and yet allows suffering for a time. The first line of argument is the free will defense. Any young suitor, you may think back to your own attempts, um, who has experienced unrequited love will tell you, and he'll tell you something that God knows only too well as well, that you cannot force anyone to love you. Love to be love has to be freely given. And top of God's priorities in creating the universe was to create human beings who were capable of enjoying a personal relationship with him. So in the Genesis account, human beings are mentioned last in chapter 1 as the climax of God's creation. Nothing is created after them. And in chapter 2, human beings are mentioned first and everything flows from their creation. They were created in a perfect relationship with God, who they were like, creative, rational, social, moral, spiritual. They could create things. They could think. They could love. They could choose. They could pray. But love to be love has to be freely given even if they knew God so well. Now with God's creation, and with that time in paradise, came a risk. They might withdraw their love, the love with which they were created and experienced. They might want to go off and do their own thing. They might want to go walk about. They, want, they might want to be autonomous and not dependent, they might think, on God. Well, they did rebel and they did disobey. They were unfaithful. But not wishing to force their obedience and so forfeit their love, God lets them go. He lets them do what he did not approve of but which nonetheless he tolerated for the sake of a bigger cause, that, he, that they might one day return and love him again with their whole heart and without compulsion. 
If God wants true love, then to have it, he has to take the risk and permit the abuse of that freedom. There is no other way. So Adam and Eve and those that were with them were allowed to break the relationship. Their disobedience breached it. They distanced themselves from God and then they fell out with each other. And God had to expel them from paradise, from his presence. God temporarily then permits a certain amount of evil and suffering, which he is opposed to, to continue in his universe because of his grander plan for the kind of world he wants to produce. And he can't produce it without human beings being free agents. The second line of defense is justice, retributive justice. Do you punish or did you punish your children? Of course you did, even if very mildly. Why? Because you want to prevent them from getting into harm. And you want them to be civil to others. Why do we punish criminals? Because we want to maintain the moral order and to discourage antisocial behavior. In both cases, a certain amount of suffering is inflicted, usually by deprivation. In the Bible, God sees it as necessary to permit a certain amount of suffering and evil. generation Cain is killing Abel. Bad things happen to bad people. The Bible sees a connection between human suffering and human sin. Human wrongdoing is subject to God's wrath and anger we learn. Such a truth is deeply embedded in the scriptures and it is impossible to airbrush it out. In Ezekiel for example we read Israel, your end has come. You will feel my anger because I am judging you for what you have done. I am paying you back for your disgusting conduct. I will not show you any mercy. I am going to punish you. One disaster after another is going to come upon you, the Lord says. And such statements from God are not confined to the Old Testament either. Jesus says more than the Old Testament in many ways. He is very emphatic on God's judgment. If you just took uh, chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, where there are a few parables that Jesus says towards the end of his earthly ministry, his punchline at the end of each, well, listen to them. 24:51. He, that's God, will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 25.30, Through, throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or 25.46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. God loves the human race. But he does not love, nor will he tolerate, rebellion against his moral character. 
Moral values matter to him. His anger is provoked by human sin. People sometimes say God hates the sin but loves the sinner, but that's an oversimplification. Sin isn't some kind of substance which you can kind of, you know, extract, well, you can separate and extract from us. There's no innocent human personality that can be cut out of our sinfulness. Sin is the wrong direction of my will. Sin is the corruption of my character. Sin is wedded to the identity which is me. So God can't hate the sin without in some sense hating me as well. So the Bible speaks of the human race as God's enemies who suffer his anger. Now his anger is not an uncontrolled passion that our anger can be. God's anger is what our anger ought to be. We ought to be angry at some of the sin that we see in the world, especially where human life is devalued. The righteous anger of the God of the Bible prevents his goodness degenerating into an unprincipled sentimentality. So according to the Bible, suffering in this world is because human beings have done wrong. In the Bible, the anger of God is not confined to the future, but rather is being revealed now. It is God's moral indignation against the human race. Actually, it provides us with a warning about the last day, the day of judgment. After all, we would be very quick to say of God, you know, if he sprung the day of judgment on us. But no, he gives us a warning of it. It is through suffering that God is alerting us to that day. You see, most of us, when life is going well, when we're enjoying both health and wealth, we give little thought, perhaps, to God and certainly to us having to face him on the last day. But often, the instant suffering comes our way, like Adam and Eve, we know. We know that we're at a distance from him, we know that we are guilty. And God, if he will have to judge us, has to signal his moral displeasure in some way in advance. So, so far then, the Bible endorses divine retribution as a theory of human suffering. But there are some serious objections to it and we have time to look at two of them today. The first is, what about all the innocent people who suffer? Now, why we might admit that none of us are perfect, we do recognize that there are degrees of guilt. So if suffering is divine retribution, you think God would provide some kind of immunity for the, the better among us um, as some kind of incentive but the fact of the matter is that the good die young and the bad live a long life. The good spend much of their life uh, to some degree in pain, while the bad guys are carefree to enjoy life. There are such inequalities in the human experience. So why is judgment so random and unfair. Other monotheistic religions have no real answer to this. 
their idea of God can be rather arbitrary. In Islam, it is Allah's will if you suffer, and suffering has simply to be endured. And such an attitude, though, really engenders resignation, maybe even resentment, and produces an idea of God who is a rather capricious, unpredictable deity. A God who is easy to fear, but difficult to love. Muslims, in fact, don't talk about loving Allah. And yet Christians talk of God, despite his retributive anger against human sin, as a God of amazing love. Of course, the crux of the Christian view of suffering is to understand how this astonishing mental somersault is achieved. Now the Bible, it should be noted, does not individualise retribution. We are not allowed to deduce from one person's misfortunes that that person must be particularly bad. The superstitious natives of Malta were wrong when they concluded that Paul must be a murderer because a poisonous snake had bitten him. Job's uh, so-called comforters, his three friends, were wrong in trying to find out some kind of hidden sin that he must have committed because he was suffering so greatly. When the tower block collapsed and killed 18 people in Jesus' day, Jesus doesn't draw the conclusion that those 18 were particularly bad. The significance of that collapse wasn't so much to those unfortunate 18 as to everyone. Unless you too repent, you also will likewise perish. Jesus says our response to calamity should be to ponder the shortness of human life and the reality of divine judgment on us all. The second objection, why is God so seemingly clumsy in apportioning judgment? Why not apportion it precisely in relation to the severity of the sin? The answer, I think, is that that's not possible because of the way in which we're made. Human beings have a very deep kind of solidarity. Our common ancestry, going back to the original sinners, means that sin is universal. We are social creatures born into a family of ready-made social relationships from which we cannot escape. Those social relationships go a very long way in determining our lot in life and maybe the amount of suffering we're likely to experience. One sin may result in a lot of suffering to others and might help explain that phrase at the end of the Ten Commandments about God visiting the sins of the fathers on their children and their children's children. In fact, the way it works reflects a simple realism with which we are all too familiar, especially if you happen to work in health, education, the police, or probation. Imagine that there's a spate of burglaries in the area. An 18-year-old neat, that is somebody who is not in education, employment, or training, is on a one-man crime wave, stealing cash, jewellery and memorabilia of sentimental as well as monetary value. He comes from a fractured family. His dad was killed in Afghanistan. His mother has never been the same since, 
and she has strived for intimacy in the arms of some pretty hopeless and unsuitable individuals, one of whom has just decided to move in and kick the lad out. So who's to blame for this little crime wave? The lad, his mother, her latest boyfriend, those who caused the conflict that killed his father? Well, all are involved in each other's sins and are suffering for them. It's what Paul means when he points out that the whole human family is infected by sin, which goes all the way back to the first human beings who sinned and all subsequent suffering stems from that original sin. Somehow or other, in a way that's not explained, there is God and he puts human beings to manage his earth and to multiply. And as the relationship with him goes wrong, it then goes wrong with other human beings and somehow it goes wrong with the, the earth, the universe that man is meant to manage. Sin isn't just personal and individual, it is in that sense racial due to our personal solidarity with Adam as the founder of the human race. So if we share a common sinfulness, it's not surprising that we share a common suffering. It means that in our world there is an inconsistency in the link between sin and suffering, with often the good suffering more than the bad. And ultimately there's only two ways of looking at this. Suffering and evil are a distortion which has crept into the world which is fundamentally a good world. Or the chaotic and meaningless element is the norm and the events we call good are just chance happenings thrown up by the laws of statistics. Which is it? Is it a cacophony in which occasionally some random harmony is struck? Or is it a symphony in which a few instrumentalists spoil it by going off key? All of us would like to believe in the order and harmony of the universe. When we hear discord, we know it's misplaced. So we ask God, why don't you do something about it if you are really there? Well, as you probably realised, you'll have to return next week to find out what he has done and what he will do. And it will be something that will affect the way you respond to your own suffering.